Welcome to the Personal Protection Podcast with your host, Lee Hasdell, at the Off Grid Dojo in association with Critical Performance. Tonight, we have the pleasure to feature our special guest, Mr. Matt State from the Modern Samurai Martial Arts Academy. Welcome. Uh, do, you yeah, you Matt? do you want me to call you Matt or Matthew? Or... <laughs> oh, Matt's, Matt's absolutely fine. Uh, I only get called Matthew when I've done something wrong. Uh, okay. Well, if you say anything wrong, then I'll, I'll say Matthew. Okay. <laughs> right. So um, I'm going to hand over to you for a brief while. So if you can introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you do, and um, we'll start it from there. Uh, okay. Well, I won't bore everyone with the gory details in the sense that, you know, I won't list everything like that. But overview, I've been doing martial arts since I was a teenager. I've done all different types of things. I've, I've, I've gone down the competitive route. I've gone down the combatives route. I've done a lot of traditional stuff. I run a full-time martial arts gym, spent many years working in security, and then spent another several years training security personnel, which is something that I do quite a lot of. I do a lot of corporate training and things, and that's now bled over into more kind of coaching business kind of stuff as well. So that's a very speedy trek through. Sure. Um, you can find anything else you need to know, a quick Google search this day and age. Sure. Okay, well, it sounds pretty much like myself. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I was very keen to get you on the podcast, because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of crossovers and synergy between my experience and your experience. And yeah, what we want to try and do is want to try and get as much information to the audience or people that are interested in the subject of personal protection. And I just want to mention on that point, the reason why we've called the, the podcast, the personal protection podcast is, is because we wanted to cover as many aspects of say martial arts, combatives, combat sports, uh, personal development, uh, self-defense. And of course, that's a, an umbrella term um, we use in personal protection. So for those that are listening or maybe new to this podcast, we're going to be covering as many things as possible. And as you can see already from Matt's experience, is obviously got a lot of things to, to bring to the table and to, to share and discuss with myself. So where are we at at the moment with regards to your training facility? Or I did notice that you've got like a, a new establishment that's opened up. Yeah, yeah. Well, like everybody else, uh, we, we're having to adapt and use that terrible word pivot, which I've you know, been overused dramatically in the past 18 months. But um, yeah, so I've got my full time place, which we're just on the cusp of reopening because I'm on the Welsh border and the rules are slightly different. Sure. Uh, but in the interim, I've also built a little studio dojo uh, attached to my property, which is a, a much more sort of traditional flavour and reminiscent of uh, training in other countries. And, and, and it's a really nice sort of headspace. So it's it, it's sort of it's personal. Um, it's got a really good vibe to it. And it's a great it's a great place to sort of centre yourself, because, again, as you know, that in this crazy world that we live in at the moment, having a space where you can just focus in on your training and leave the world outside is yeah you know, is, is a really valuable asset in this day and age yeah and um i mean would you say was it fair to say that those that have practiced the martial arts have had a bit of a head start with regards to the current events with with regards to lockdowns and basically just all, all of the all the sudden changes in day-to-day society um do, do you think the martial artists have got an advantage or should have it's an interesting question because again you can look at that from 
a number of different ways. And on the one hand, you can say, well, uh, technically the answer should be yes, because as martial artists, we train to essentially problem solve in the physical world. So we should be able to transfer that particular skill set across into other avenues and be able to problem solve across the board. However, there's also the other side of the coin where actually certain types of training and certain ways of doing it, what that actually does, that embeds a follower mentality within you. And so you're part of a hierarchy, you're part of a organization. And so you do what you're told when you're told to do it. And actually that's the complete counter to the opposite of that sort of problem solving, free thinking kind of thing. And again, there are different types of intelligence, which again, I'm sure you're absolutely aware of. And they have different different qualities and so not everybody is a problem solver not everybody is somebody who can you know figure out solutions in the moment and move forward and so yeah that's kind of quite interesting because a lot of people you saw right at the beginning you saw a lot of people with these crazy knee-jerk reactions and and and, and i'd spend i'd spend a lot of my time listening to people saying i'm working harder now than i ever did um, you know, I'm, I'm recording 50 million Zooms an hour and I'm teaching three kids every 10 minutes in their front room with very little financial reward. And I'm yeah. working 23 hours a day, you know, and it's like, why? You know, why? Why? Why don't you actually just take a bit of time, reflect on it, figure out a plan of action and then implement that at the right time in the right stages in a in, in, in a way that isn't just a panic response? You know, so um, again, you can tie that into self-defense protection kind of stuff because it's the same thing you don't want yeah. that panic response yeah exactly yeah um my or well, one of my instructors always used to say to me that for the beginner the martial arts takes place inside the dojo but for the more experienced or the the masters and the senseis the martial arts takes place in the wider world everywhere so the, the world is your dojo so to speak I, I i guess you've heard of that expression before yeah absolutely yeah i mean again you you've got a really interesting history and pedigree in, in your particular journey. And I know a lot of that involved actually being in places like Japan and living there and, uh, and, 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 and getting involved with that kind of mindset. Um, you know, my partner lived there for a number of years. I've been there, but I've never really stayed for any great length of time. Um, but that way of thinking, that way of being sure. really sort of touches on what you were saying there. And I do think, you know, a lot of us in the Western world can, learn from that a lot more um yeah. you know you don't need a place to access a mindset really in, in that respect and and absolutely we can learn there's always lessons to be learned from everything yeah well going back to one of the points you made that potentially martial arts can make you i think what you was alluding to is that you can become a bit habitual with regards to maybe your training your practice uh, like for instance you, you can only do certain things in the dojo and with regards to the closing down of the dojos over the last um, um, 18 months or so, it's kind of forced a lot of instructors to actually think outside of the box, which, to be fair, they should have done anyway. Uh, thinking outside the box, is, to me, is a vital component of being a martial artist or uh, protector or guardian or security, uh, close protection. You've always got to be ready for the unexpected, so to speak. And... Uh, like for instance we we hope for the best but prepare for the worst mindset or mentality you you, you found that as well yeah and 
Well, that's that's probably the best way to to, to sum it all up, isn't it? You know, you um, prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. It's that again, back to that whole worry in the garden kind of deal and that kind of thing. Um, it, it's it, it's 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 weird because we're 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 so we're we're kind of moving away, but in the same vein, it's very relevant to what we're saying. I mean, it is very strange when you you look at you look at some people and the way that they they look at the world. And on the one hand, they're very big on personal protection, self-defense, that kind of thing. But then that doesn't go into every aspect of their life. Sure. Um, you know, we all, we all, this is something I was talking about the other day, funny enough, with a, a friend of mine who's who's very heavily uh, into blogging and writes a very successful blog in and around martial arts and things. Yeah. And they were talking about the fact that quite often you'll find instructors that are high level within their particular art, but they go home and get henpecked to death. You know, they've got children that treat them terribly. You know, um, they, 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 they're not actually these well-rounded sophisticated human beings that they present on the mat um yeah. and there are those character flaws there and sometimes again like i said it's slightly off topic a little bit but quite often you'll find that a lot of people gravitate towards martial arts because they were lacking in some other area of their life and that that applies yeah. to me as well by the way it's exactly yeah. why i ended up doing it um but not everybody gets to actually solve that problem well, I think one of the one of the main differences, because um, I know you've you've been involved with security in many different capacities, uh, similar to myself, that when you've actually got an occupation where you can actually incorporate the self defense, martial arts, personal protection stuff, it it kind of makes well you have to it makes sense. So we get more used to or more familiar with with doing dynamic risk assessments. So I'm always accused of never being off duty so to speak so when i go into a restaurant i do the typical thing where i check the fire exits i check the fire extinguishers i look at the windows i look for escape routes i sit with my back against the wall and um you know i i, I often get accused of you know being too serious about socializing but it's kind of it's who i am it's you know <laughs> do you find that yourself um, I'm a little easier on that now, but <laughs> yes. Yeah. When I was active, um, very much so, exactly the same. I, I would yeah. quite often get a nudge and an elbow in the ribs. You're doing your dormant pose again, you know, um, because you would. You'd literally be three foot above the, the eye line of everybody, sort of scanning the room, you know, um, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, and uh, you just can't help it. And it, it, it's, it's like a brickie walking past the wall and saying that's plumb or a dentist checking out your exactly. teeth when you meet it's it's part of the job and it's part of the role i mean one of the and this isn't to dismiss anybody of what they've done or anything but one of the fundamental things that i found and i think is relevant with regards to any kind of frontline work where there's the risk of violence or you have to deal with confrontation and that is the training suddenly has a consequence yeah there's you know there's a genuine consequence to the action in the same way i mean you know, you could say getting into a ring at a high level, there's a consequence to an action. Of course there is. Yeah. But if you're just training twice a week for a bit of fun in a local village hall and, you know, and, and you're having a great time with that and it's a bit of fitness, a bit of friendship, a bit of, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's no real consequence to action. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that I think is that, that I think is where the different, the difference is in, in whichever context you look at it, it's, Whenever somebody puts themselves in a position where, where there's a consequence to action, then the approach becomes different. The mental side of it becomes different. The training becomes different. 
Yeah, and this is where I feel a lot of instructors, especially in the self-defense world or self-protection world, they become quite fixated on things like combat sports not having a place because it's kind of like it's a game. You know, it's, it wouldn't necessarily work in the street. There's no referee in the street. Yeah, that dreaded, yeah, that dreaded phrase. Yeah, I mean that that leads me to to one of the questions that I'm that I'm asking all of the guests, and that's katana versus the shinai. Now I'll just preface it a little bit because there might be some new listeners to the podcast. So as you can see back here, I've got the katanas at the top. Uh, these are actually uh, bokken, but they're they're training swords. So some instructors say that you should only use live weapons and train for real. And other instructors will say that you should only train for fun, train to practice uh, using softened, blunted weapons or boxing gloves and so on and so forth, and maybe just do combat sports. Me personally, I do a bit of both and I see the relevance as long as the context is put in place and as long as there's no um, uh, sort of delusions put in place, then I'm perfectly happy to practice both. I've practiced both all my life. Um, so it's, it's the question I'm asking all of the guests if they want to expand on it at all in terms of their teaching, uh, their philosophy, their ideology with regards to, in a nutshell, combat sports or hardcore self-defense street training. <laughs> There's so much to sort of look at with that particular kind of question. And it is a great question. It does throw up some... Kind of interesting responses from people but there's two main sort of facets to that i'd like to just start with and then maybe expand oh. a bit further and that is number one i always find that people play to their strengths and dismiss their weaknesses okay and so if somebody's a long-term traditionalist then they will obviously steer towards that if they're a combat guy they'll, they'll steer towards that it's just natural that we do those things yeah. um the other thing really is the fact that there are, to me, there are, there are three main elements, or I think there are three main elements to personal protection, self-defense, and it's not all about the physical. So physical is one of the elements, yep. psychological is another part of the element, and then the legal aftermath ramifications, you know, those kind of things, that's yep. the third. So there's, there's three main elements to that. And for me, there has to be a balance of the three. Yep. And so that's really where you can say, well, if I do a course on the law, I'm not learning any physical. So there's there's not an even distribution there with regards to the actual knowledge base. Yeah. If I'm, say, a high-level MMA fighter, then there's no denying I'm going to have a serious level of physical skill. And sure. regardless of what people say, you know, you're going to have trouble holding that bad boy down, you know. And so they've got a, they've got a real high knowledge there, but then they don't necessarily know anything about the law or how to represent themselves yeah. afterwards. And, and again, the psychological side of it, because if you spend three months gearing for a fight against an opponent at a time and a place that you know, in a rule set that you understand, that's a completely different animal to being confronted right there in the moment, unexpectedly by a few people that are going to do something completely random. Yeah. Psychologically, there's a huge difference with all of that. And so the, for me, the best is, is taking the best from each of the worlds. So I'm a, I'm, a huge, I'm a huge fan of combat arts because they teach so many great things. And, you know, if, if you want the truth about what you can actually do, mm -hmm. then that's the way to find out. 
you know, we in the nicest possible way, we can all we can all walk about with our thumbs in our belts, barking orders at white belts. So, but, you know, that doesn't you know, that doesn't actually tell us whether we're any good. You know, if I get in a ring or if I get on the mats with somebody who is equally capable and I test myself against that person, then I'm getting real-time feedback. I'm getting real-life information of what I can and actually can't do. And so I don't suffer that overconfidence in myself that maybe I don't actually deserve, you know. Yeah. And also, it's a bit like sticking a, a you know a, a, a tire in the water to find out where the air is coming out. Where is the puncture? How do I fix it? Where the weakness. So it's a great... Yeah, exactly, where the weaknesses are. So it's a really good tool. So in that respect, for physical skills, it's a really good tool. But then you've got to look at the training for outcome, which is something I talk about a lot, which is basically what is it you're trying to achieve? So if I want to be the best MMA fighter I can be, yeah. I'm not going to spend my time learning necessarily a lot about combatives because sure. they're different outcomes. In yeah. the same way, if I want to be an Olympic taekwondo player, if we take something quite recent, I want to be a, a an Olympic level taekwondo player. I'm not going to do K1 kickboxing. Why? Because yep. they are completely different skill sets, even though there are similarities, and one will not actually help the other one. Yeah, I I, I often find that, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, it depends how you look at it. Everybody has a certain amount of time and energy in a week, so you've got to kind of allocate. So if you've got, let's say, I don't know, ten hours that you can dedicate to training and, I don't know, 10 litres of energy, however you want to describe it, you've got to apply that to where it's most um, useful as opposed to wasting it. So like you say, if, you, if you're training for the Olympic Taekwondo squad, training in, say, K1, although it, it's probably not a bad thing, you could probably use your time uh, more wisely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I, I went through this transition years ago, and it's just a sort of anecdotal story. It doesn't mean anything specific. But um, at one point, I was I was competing in uh, traditional karate, sort of points karate kind of thing. Yeah? yeah, And then I started moving into full contact kickboxing and K1 stuff. And I found myself getting banned all the time. I'd be going to these karate competitions and getting banned for hitting people. And I'm like... <laughs> come on you know this is <laughs> this is just the way that i'm training now and it's the response that comes you know and it's uh, and so that's a very real experience of, of how the two didn't actually marry together very well and so um i ended up having to make a conscious decision about where i wanted to take my training and the outcomes that i was after yeah. and so i mean the same applies to you when you were when you were doing your competitive fighting at which you reached a really high level that that wasn't accidental. You trained for that outcome specifically. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, to, to get to that point, you would have had to have really narrowed down, laid sure. focus on the way that you trained and how you trained to fit within those parameters. Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's kind of what we're talking about here. If we're talking about personal protection, then do I need to be a top level MMA fighter? No. But would it help me to have some really top level skills that I can bring to bear? And, and, and put into my toolbox with the other things that I know. Well, of course it would. Of course it would. And it would do me good to practice those as well. Yeah. Um, and, and again, what you often see is that conflict of styles with regards to um, the types of ways that people attack other people and stuff like that. Yeah. And if you're always, and again, this isn't to dismiss anyone, but you know, if you spent your entire life in a two-step sparring environment where you know you high block, you counter. 
the moment that somebody just comes hissing and screaming at you, punching and kicking, and it's completely random, and all the angles are wrong, and the distance is wrong, and yeah, oh, that's horrible. That's a, that's a real horrible awakening, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Go, and so, back. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, Carol. Going back to something that you, you brought up, which is a very interesting, interesting point. I've actually got one guest that's going to be on, that's actually going to be specialising in the legal aspects of confrontations, um, the aftermath of an attack, um, and also those that work in any form of enforcement, be it security, close protection, military, police, so on and so forth. Now, I've always viewed understanding the law as part of personal protection because going to jail <laughs> you know if you end up in jail you haven't protected yourself very well legally and you're going to put yourself in a very vulnerable position where you potentially can't protect yourself and you're going to be surrounded by people that might happily um attack you so staying out of jail as far as i'm concerned is a massive part of personal protection and I put a lot of a lot of emphasis on use of force and so on and so forth. And also getting students to understand that it's not necessarily what you do, it can be what you say that could get you in, in jail or in trouble. Even from a defense uh, perspective, I, I won't go into the details, but I, I once caught a burglar, an intruder in, in my property, and I ended up in Crown Court. And potentially, because of the way the legal system works, I could have ended up doing 10 years in jail just for protecting and defending my property. Um, that happened probably uh, something like 1991, 92. And I know the laws have changed, but back then it was heavily favoured in the, on the intruder side. And I learned a lot <clears throat> going through that process, uh, in going, in, going to court and with the lawyers, solicitors, barristers, so on and so forth. I learned a lot about the subject you know, in real time, real life situations. Uh, after that, I really looked into the law because, like I say, I came home, found somebody in my property, and I defended myself. They came worse off, and I ended up in Crown Court, potentially looking at uh, a long jail sentence. Fortunately, it didn't happen. Um, the guy was actually on a 7 o'clock curfew, and I caught him at 11 o'clock at night, so that kind of... <laughs> that that was helpful but yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah so um you mentioned that you you've, you've been involved in teaching security so that i'm sure you would have had to cover some of the legal stuff with that yeah yeah no it's really interesting what we said there because you know i i i I've, I've been there myself and one of the things that you hear all the time is this oh it's better to be judged by 12 and carried by six and everything and it's these, these sort of blase comments that people throw yeah. out and, and i'm not disagreeing with that person personally entirely but what i am saying is there are so many people out there that have never actually been in Crancourt and have never actually been in that situation and if you want to be in a scary environment that's one of them yeah the it's it's an incredibly intense experience it's very oh. very frightening yeah. Um, and, it, and it's something that does stick with you and it does change the way you look at the world. So I, I totally agree with you. And I think that when people sort of are quite dismissive about that, I think sometimes it's just because they don't understand quite quite how badly that would affect life. You know, you're talking a year of your life, at least 18 months, more likely, when yeah. it all goes through the court systems. You know? Yeah. 
family, the stress on everything, the, the, the hardships that you will face. And of course, as you said rightly, if you do end up going to prison, it's not just yourself. How are you supposed to protect your family when they're on exactly. the outside? Yeah. They've got no income or very little income. You know, it's there's so many reasons why uh, understanding the law is important. But then I did want to pull you up on a little point, because in the modern age now, this is where it gets to the point where there's this sort of transition between 30 years ago and today. Yeah. And that is it's not just what you say after the event. It's now what you say before the event. How many people do you see on social media going, social media, yeah. I've just learned five ways to kill somebody? Yeah. You know, and, and they're literally, literally in their day in court. That lawyer is going to be there going, hi, can you remember the Facebook post you put yeah. up where you said, watch out, Mr. Burglar, you know, I've learned all these skills and I can't wait to show you, you know, that kind of braggart, that kind of um, way of approaching things that will actually get people home. And, and that's something that I'm quite big on at the moment because of the way the world is turning and because of the way we're all interacting and having these conversations. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a really important thing that people need to take on board. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that with regards to social media, because it's just reminded me of, of a situation that happened to a friend of mine. They got into an altercation in a petrol station and they phoned me up and they said, look, I think I'm going to get into trouble. I said, why? He said, well, there's a guy who's been giving me lots of grief on um, social media and we bumped into each other. So we had a bit of an argument and he looked like he was going to, throw the first punch so I throw, threw the first punch and basically knocked him out and I said oh yeah you could have a problem because obviously a CCTV so on and so forth you're gonna have to justify and explain why you threw uh, the first punch or use a preemptive strike you need to be able to explain and articulate that and he said well he says looking on his Facebook he's showing videos of himself using concealed knives in training you know he shows different ways of concealing them so he said potentially he could have had a knife on him so in my mind i had to throw the first punch because if he was carrying he would have been able to stab me so that's a good example of how social media can actually work against you or in this case it kind of works for him <laughs> oh, absolutely yeah no, that is a prime example and it's something that that's, that's what people don't understand. If you say, you know, if you go on social media and you say, oh, next time I see you, man, I'm going to smack you upside the head. And then that person planks you first when you, when you do see each other, then, yeah. you know, that's, that's the way it works, isn't it? So it's really interesting. And, and the other point that I think is of interest and a lot of people maybe don't quite understand um, how it works in context. And that is that when, I, when I'm training, especially people that are going to be working in that environment and I'm delivering actual uh, recognised qualifications and things, then I say to them, guys, you are now an expert. And almost without exception, they look at me a bit skewed and they're like, you what? We've had like one day's training. And I'm like, yeah, but in the eyes of the law, you are trained. And that now makes you an expert. Yeah. And you will be held to a higher account, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's fair or not. And the same applies to martial arts. And this is something that, again, we, we could talk about all day. But the general populace, they hear the word black belt and they think expert killing machine. Yeah. Because that's how it's been portrayed. And, and maybe years ago, that was actually true in the case. I mean, I remember as a kid, a black belt was to be revered and had a presence, you know, whereas now you've got eight year old six stands walking around 
and it's a bit of a different sort of yeah, yeah. fish. But yeah. but the point still remains: the general public think a black belt is a one-man killing machine, and once you've had any kind of training, regardless, you will be held to a higher account than anybody else. And again, it's just things to think about in this modern age. How many times do we see people with a profile picture of them, you know, kicking somebody in their head or doing some funky move or, you know, things like that? All of those things will be used and will be part of the conversation, yeah. both for and against. Because as you said there, where, where you remarked about the guy saying about the concealed weaponry, what's, you know, what's to say that if, if, if we ever ended up in that situation or similar, I couldn't use the same kind of argument and say, well, hey, look, I've seen his Facebook. It's full of full of pictures of him fighting and training. You know, I was I was genuinely in fear that if I didn't do something quickly, I was going to come off worse. Yeah. What's to say that, that I mean that's the modern age now. It could almost be happen. it could almost be a justification with no altercation. <laughs> Somebody could literally just walk up to you and hit you and say, Well, have you seen his Facebook? This guy's dangerous. Uh, he might have yeah. he might have a <laughs> it's crazy, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's the thing is, you, you say you say that, but when you look at when you look at the rest of the world and the way some things are going and the way that people's reactions to things are going, it's not actually that far fetched. Truth be told. What do you mean, like so, political correctness and things? Or, yeah, yeah, the whole sort of the whole wokeness, snowflake stuff, and all the all just all the crazy and the reactions that people have now. Everything's polarized, isn't it? I mean, the art of the art of communication is not dead, but suffering a lot um whether that's manufactured through social media on purpose to create division and i don't know but what i do know is i spent a lot of time learning about conflict management right i spent a lot of a lot of time honing that craft and using it day in day out so it's not a it's not just book learning it's not just academic learning it's actual functional yeah Uh, and so i spent an awful lot of time figuring that out and that to me is the essence of good self-defense and protection yeah. is having really good conflict management skills and, and you know right. and not getting involved in that in the first instance, right? The problem is essentially good conflict management is communication, is thrashing out problems, is you saying I think A, me saying I think B, we then communicate and then we reach some kind of commonality, even if that commonality is that we agree to differ. Um, we yep. can at least acknowledge other people's The art of that seems to be disappearing rapidly. And um, from a self-defense point of view, that is a worry because now it's either you're one thing or you're the other. You know, okay. it's, it's getting to be very, very black and white. And that's such a divisive thing in the world. And uh, I think we need to really work hard to try yeah. and stop that. Well, I, I use the term verbal ninjutsu. So yeah, yeah. you can often talk your way either out of a situation or talk um, the conflict. Um, you can find the resolution and <clears throat> bring it down to to a humane level. And you could almost become very good friends with potentially somebody that was just about to knock your head off. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of power in terms of communication skills or soft skills, as it's kind of commonly known. Um, yeah. Just sort of taking a bit of a segue for a moment i like to ask the guests about anything self-development wise outside of the martial arts i know that we mentioned that the martial arts kind of should and does cover everything but i'm just i'm just interested in maybe 
some of the abstract things or hobbies or I know I've looked on your Facebook because um, we've been friends for quite a while and I see a lot of stuff like with regards to you, you like going in your van, um, going into nature, stuff like that, which is also similar to yeah. myself. So, yeah, just if, if there's anything that of interest that you want to talk about that's got nothing to do with martial arts, per se. <laughs> um, well, there, there, there are... There are definitely things that I think enhance my life, if that's what you mean, um, outside of the martial arts. And as you mentioned, I, I, I've, I've got my van and I love to get out in it. And, um, and nature is my church. I mean, that's the easiest way for me to explain that. Um, You're in a good part of the country for that. Oh yeah, I'm in a wonderful part of the world, and yeah. again, I'm you know it's a, it's a purposeful choice. Um, yeah, I live in a fantastic area with wonderful countryside and. I find it invigorating, uplifting, humbling, you know, all of those great words. So whenever, um, you know, whenever I feel that things are a little bit too much or there's a problem I need to figure out, I, yeah. usually the answer is at the other side of a five mile hike in the mountains, sure. you know, that kind of deal, that, that kind of thing. Um, my dog as well. And again, uh, as you know, as a dog only yourself there in, incredibly interesting animals in, in, in what they teach you in the world. I mean, I'm forever saying be more dog. Um, you know, the dog is in the now. The dog doesn't have deception. It doesn't understand the concept of that. You know, it, yeah. you know exactly what that dog is feeling at any given moment. Yeah. And, and it's not ashamed of feeling those things either. Mm. That, that's, that, that is constantly a place of learning for me and seeing that. I find trying them... to remind myself. I find them almost like a form of meditation when I'm, when I'm walking around with my dogs, I, it, it takes me, you know, to a certain brain wave frequency. Um, I'm able to reflect, uh, especially in the evening walks, you kind of reflect on what's taking place in the day and like what went well and what you could do better. So on and so forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely a form of self-development. Uh, I mean, how, in terms of, um, do you call it like stealth camping or off-grid van life or what, what, what do you call it? Or you just get out there's, and there's, there's, Yeah, there's all kinds of different sort of titles for these kind of things. <laughs> uh, I mean, um, yeah, some people will call it wild camp camping. And then it's a bit like martial arts, really, the van community, because you'll have, yeah, somebody will say it's wild camping and then somebody else will be jumping up and down, spitting feathers because you're in a van, it's not wild. Uh, and then somebody else will be saying, well, we're not on a campsite, so it is. And then they just all argue between themselves. Um, it's Essentially, for me, the, the van is it serves three main purposes. Number one, I do like to tinker. I do like to create. I do like to make things, build things and have stuff going on to keep me busy and active. So that's number one. Number two... I like the ability to be self-sufficient in whatever I do. So is it almost like a form of is it like a form of prepping in some way? I mean, uh, it is, but it's not in that whole. I'm going to have like three years worth of baked beans in the cellar kind of mindset. It's not quite there, but it. But I just like to be um, self-sufficient and capable. So if I go somewhere, I know that you know I can park up, sleep at night. I'll be warm. I'll be comfortable. I'll be happy. I've got enough food. You know, in the same way, and this is a little known thing, in the same way that if I'm going out to, say, a dinner party or something like that with friends, I will always make sure that I've that, 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 that there's something available that I can eat and I can be comfortable because, sure. you know, I just, I, it's, I'm not sure whether it's a mistrust of people in general. I'm not sure it is. Um, 
but I, I just I just like to know that you know I can sort of deal with things in the way yeah. that I want. So, and so the van allows for that because it means uh, that that I've got everything I need. I'm literally the, the proverbial snail, you know, with the house on the back. I mean, everything is there that yeah. I require. And also, it's great fun because I've got a lot of toys in there as well, you know. So I'll get out in the woods with the axe to throw in and. Um, you know, set up a little tank, get a fire going, cook some tea, just watch the stars for the night, you know, which is far better than television for the most part. Um, yep. And that sort of thing as well. And then the third part of it, which is obviously, again, as we said, with the dogs and things, it, it allows me that that freedom and that ability. Um, where I have a large dog, he has, you know, his own space, he has his own requirements, he has his own things. He's safe. He's warm. He's comfortable. The whole thing's insulated. There's, um, there's heating in there. There's, you know, there's 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 fans in there. There's, um, and so I know 100% of the time that the dog is comfortable, safe, happy, and we can do the things that we want to do. So, yep. so for me, it's it's just a complete sort of win-win all, all way round. And uh, and if we do ever reach this sort of Armageddon type yep. dystopia that, that that people sometimes claim we're heading for. Um, I'm hoping that it'll come in handy for that as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I for me, it offers a real sense of liberty and freedom. Uh, just that sense of knowing I can go, right, mm, tonight I'm going to live in on the South Coast. Tonight I'm going to live in Wales. Tonight I'm going to live in... Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a fantastic sense of liberty and freedom, which which, well, is, another, yeah. which is another important part of my my personal protection philosophy is that it offers me liberty and freedom uh, and as much as many choices and possibilities as, as, as I can get. Um, and in recent times, I mean, that's kind of been under attack. Um, I know we're not really going to go into sort of current events too much, but um, I'm going to change the subject slightly. Uh, with regards to, say, your training program at your, do you call it academy or dojo or? Both, either? Uh, yeah, academy, but yeah, just academy, really, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so with regards to your programme, say, during the week, uh, if you could just give a sort of quick overview as to, and also if you break it down into what different styles or if some of it's combat sports, some of it's strictly personal protection or self-defence, or if, if there's any abstract styles that you, that you practice or maybe you have instructors your academy that teach something yeah like um well like uh, like a lot of other people there's there's essentially three types of students and i'm simplifying a bit but it sort of it, it sort of shows the kind of way it works um there are three basic types of students there's the there's the once a week want to tell the people at the office they do a bit of martial arts guys uh and they're great they're fine then there's the what i like to call the the motivated by results people now, whether that be competition, whether that be fitness, whether that be belts, you know, they, they want something tangible at the end of it. You best give me a present. If I'm going to work hard, you best reward me kind of vibe. Yeah. And again, nothing wrong with that because, it, you know, as a motivational tool, it's great. I'm goal-orientated, as I'm sure you are as well. Sure. Um, and then the third type are the ones that actually want to learn martial arts for the sake of learning martial arts. They're not bothered about a belt or a shiny trophy or anything else. They want the knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, that group that wants the knowledge and are willing to put themselves through what's necessary to get to that point, because it's not an easy road, as you know. No. They're a small percentage of the whole. And so for that group to exist, 
for a for a professional full-time place you need to have all three of those types of students because yeah. they, they, they can go and, and they're all great in their own way i'm not dismissing any of them i love the guys that you know that look towards their belts that look towards attaining things because they're working towards a goal and it's great it's great to help them with that it's great to watch them grow and expand and everything else and the same with the guys that just want to do a bit of fitness and when i say guys i mean everybody um, same with the guys who want to do a bit of fitness or the parents that bring their kids because they want a bit of discipline and so on and so forth. But that's another subject we could talk about all day. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but they're, but they're, they are there because they want whatever it is that they want in that moment. Sure. Right? And that's absolutely fine. But it's that core small element of students, the ones that keep you coming back and keep you fighting to keep those doors open. Yeah. For me anyway. You know, if it wasn't yeah. them, I wouldn't have the doors open. So there's your three different types of students. And then what I tend to do, the timetable kind of reflects that. So we teach the same as a lot of people. We take, teach sort of MMA, BJJ, um, contact kickboxing. We do points um, kickboxing and, and continuous for the kids and some of the adults if that's what they want. Um, I don't do any traditional things anymore, specifically traditional, because A, there are people far better at it than I am. And B, because for me personally, I uh, again, this is perhaps a conversation that warrants one of its own, is that I find that it's quite constricting when somebody says to me, you may have found a better way of doing it, but you can't because that's not how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, it's pretty much <laughs> so, where I'm at at the moment with regards to yeah. martial arts. and Yeah, yeah it's, an, it's an interesting sort of way to look at it, but it does need looking at. And so, as I say, that's a conversation all in itself, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, and so we've, we've got those those different sort of classes and those subsets of things. So we've got the sports side of things, we've got the ranking side of things, we've got the belt side of things. And then I do a thing called modern street systems, which is, um, I, I suppose the, in layman's terms, that's our sort of combative side of things, our self-defense kind of stuff. That's a whole mismatch of mm. experience in all kinds of fields that are brought to bear. There's crab in there, there's cap in there, there's a lot of SDF stuff, a lot of data and stuff, a lot of things from you know jeff thompson back in the day it's not a replica of any of those things but yeah. it's elements of you know because again if it ain't broke don't fix it and, and 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 i defy anyone to tell me that jeff's stuff from 20 years ago isn't just as relevant today uh in the oh, most part, yeah. mm. I, I, often, so, I often look back at some of his stuff and um it's yes yeah, still relevant it's very absolutely. archetypal <clears throat> no absolutely and so and so there's all of that kind of side of things in it for those people and then outside of that then there's obviously the security training and the corporate stuff that that, that comes into that as well yeah. for people that are frontline and and need that extra level of um of, of experience and knowledge yeah and um is there any particular part of that that you prefer to teach or i guess it's just you have a holistic approach um you see the value and the importance of every aspect because it's almost like if you take away one, then the whole thing potentially falls down. Yeah, you need the, you need them all, um, and they all they all bring benefits and they all bring lessons. And this is something again that I think is really interesting because even the things that I don't particularly like doing, they teach me something. Sure. Um, and so, as an example of that, I never used to teach kids before I opened Modern Samurai Martial Arts. I'd only ever teach adults. Why? Because, well, I didn't want to deal with other people's screaming kids, you know, and when you get that whole, well, we want you to discipline them, it's like, dude, that's your job. 
you know, I'm a martial arts instructor, you know, don't come to me expecting miracles. Um, <laughs> but on the other side of the coin, what I've learned since teaching kids, especially the little, little ones, is every now and again, they'll just hit you with this little piece of magic and you're just totally unexpected and bosh, and it just changes the way you look at the world kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that, that's been a, a sort of a revelation and seeing the kids grow as well. I mean, I've got kids now that have been with me all the way through and I've seen that, you know, they're, in, they're adults now. And that's an amazing thing and, and a real privilege to be part of that journey and be allowed access like that. So, yeah. And so, yeah, so even though I would say sometimes I find some of that a little frustrating, there's so much positive, you know, so many positive aspects to that and so many great things. Yeah. Um, but then you can also flip it the other side of the coin. I mean, I'm equally as frustrated on occasion by, uh, by, by some of the, shall we say, more competitive guys, you know, the guys that are really striving for a high level yeah. um, rewards in that arena because, because it can be quite sort of one-dimensional. And you're like, you're like, guys, you're missing so much, you know, you're missing an awful lot of things. And so, so yeah, I find it, um, I suppose like a lot of people, I find it really, really interesting in, uh, and it's not always the things that I think I'm going to like, I like, and vice versa. But yeah. then you've also got, and again, you know yourself, any any person who runs any kind of club knows themselves. There's also all the other hats you have to wear as well. It's not <laughs> just being on the mat, doing the teaching. Yeah. There's all those other hats and all those other skills that need to be learned. And of course, a whole industry is built up around that. Yeah. Um, and so now you've literally, you, you've, you've, you've got layer upon layer of people that will teach you absolutely everything, you know, that, that you need to know. And, um, and some of it's good, some of it's bad, some of it's downright shocking. Yeah. But Well, one of the, um, <laughs> one of the kind of uh, almost difficult aspects of, say, the elite martial artists or the competitor is that they can tend to have a, quite a, a selfish demeanour about their goals now yes. i've got i've i used to have all these fancy japanese oaths uh, over the years and in the end i just simplified it uh, as simple as possible so with my students they we don't sort of take an oath but it's written on the walls and in the license books and so on and so forth um so the first thing is to develop yourself to develop others and then to develop the school or the dojo so if a student asks me a question, I'll answer, I'll answer with a question back to them. I'll say, well, does it develop yourself? And they'll say, yeah. Does it develop others? Mm, no, because it's about me. Okay, well, we're not interested in that. If they ask me another question, I say, well, does it develop yourself? Yeah. Does it develop your training partners? Yeah. Will it develop the school? Yeah, of course it will. Okay, let's do it. So that's my way of filtering uh, maybe demands is a good word, the demands of the students. Um, so, yeah, I just made it really, really simple. And if it doesn't fall into any of those things, I tend to walk away from it. If I think it's going to cause the dojo harm or other students harm or the, the competitor harm, then I, I, I swerve it as best I can. Yeah, that's, that, to be fair, that's quite a, that's a pretty good filter, and um, and, yeah. it, and it covers both bases, doesn't it? So, yeah, yeah that's that's not a bad way of looking at the world. And just, um, I, I used to train uh, many, many years ago, uh, let me think from something like 1985, with, I used to train a very, very good uh, class for around about five years. 
but I never recall there ever being more than maybe six or seven tops of us. And in the end, the instructor closed it because he couldn't afford to pay the rent. Okay. So he said to me, look, in my honest opinion, if you want to pursue a career, get yourself out. This was in kickboxing. If you want to get, um, pursue your career, get yourself out to Holland. So I ended up in uh, Holland in uh, something like 1991. And um, when I went there, they had like 30, 40, 50 people in the classes training hard. Well, not necessarily hard, but training kickboxing. Yeah. And what that taught me was that when I came back to England, I ended up setting up my own kickboxing school. And I realized, right, okay, so if I focus purely on hard top-level training, I may only have five people and I can't pay the rent. Or if I tone it down uh, and have a commercial aspect to it, I'll be able to pay the rent and have nice facilities, nice equipment. So what I ended up doing was I had almost a commercial division or arm of the, the school, which would literally finance the elite fighters, which would always be approximately five, six, seven, uh, maybe up most maybe 10 fighters so at an elite level as in international championship level and i found that worked very very well and it almost created like a pyramid system and what i used to find was the um your casual or commercial trainer would actually enjoy being not necessarily training with but being in an environment where the elite athletes also train or maybe walking past them or maybe um being i mean it's, it's not like they're necessarily fans of them but it's like it's inspirational for them to see a championship fighter hitting the pads um i use the term os osmosis so you can actually learn things literally being in the same room as somebody <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely yeah the, the, even if it's just the the aura and the energy that's being given out i mean again you know that yourself and i'm sure that you've seen this over the years there are there's been people in my life, whether they be instructors or business leaders or whatever, they walk into a room and the whole room changes. The mm. whole dynamic of that room is different somehow. And yeah. it's not, you know, you can't, you can't taste it or see it or feel it, but what well, you can feel it, but you know what I mean? Sure. And it's the order and the energy of that person. And Well, also as well, just, uh, there's a massive responsibility. If, if I include, well, there's responsibility for every student, but specifically for the higher grades, the elite, athletes and definitely the instructors because we do tend to create defining moment moments in students lives that potentially will change their their lives and their history or their, their destiny so you know we, we sometimes have to be very very careful that we that we are a good influence and and also we should give ourselves a pat on the back sometimes because there's a lot of hard work that goes in and it, and it's unseen often time and um yeah I, I always recall this time this was years ago i was in um to pay for my shopping in the supermarket and there was this young lad he was probably about maybe 12 and he kept looking at me and then his dad said something to him and they were having like this conversation anyway i, I paid for my stuff and they, they were stood at the end of the checkout waiting for me and then the the dad said Could, no they said are you, are you lee hasdale I said, yeah. He says, oh, um, I just wanted to thank you. I said, oh, okay. It was a bit random. Why? And he goes, well, my son was getting bullied for years and he picked up a martial art magazine 
and he read a story that you did about, um, I think it was me fighting in Japan, and it really inspired him to take up karate. Now, ever since he took up karate, and it wasn't with me, it was some, some karate school. Um, ever since he took up karate, he stopped getting bullied and it changed his life. But it's because he read the article about myself, and I think I did mention about being at school and bullies and stuff like that and taking up the martial arts. And I ended up in Japan as an, a, an elite fighter um, that it inspired him. And he said, um, this was years ago before people took selfies and stuff. He just said he just wanted to shake my hand. And so I shook his hand and went on my way. But as I walked away, I was like, gosh, I didn't realize that you could have such an effect on somebody that you've never even met. Yeah, yeah it's incredible, isn't it? And, and something that we we have a responsibility towards. And uh, I mean, I have a, a similar story. This isn't like my crocodile's bigger than your crocodile. Right? Like, it's not like that. But it's just to show that it does happen. And, and you're right. It was, I, I, had a, I had a message one day, an email from this guy over in America. And he was um, in some place outside of Los Angeles. And he'd actually quit his job to pursue something that he'd always wanted to do. And he did that off the back of one of my YouTube videos that he'd watched. He'd been following some of my stuff for a while. Yeah. watched this video and decided to change his life and take the plunge and he was just messaging me to say that um my the things that i'd said for whatever reason that empowered him enough to make that leap and to do that and he was super excited yeah. and um and i'd never met this guy this was a grown man on this the other was... side of the world who i'd never met you know it's it's incredible was it martial arts related or it just no it was um it was actually in and around security stuff um okay that's where the sort of the connection was. And I'd done this, um, I, I, I done, it, was just, it was one of the speeches that, I, that I'd given and I talked about how, how martial arts can and should be used to, uh, in other walks of life with regards to harnessing the fear and the way that that works and, and understanding yeah. how fear and everything works. And, um, and basically, you know, basically making life choices not based solely around being afraid of fear itself, kind of deal. Yeah. Um, and and so that was, yeah, that, that was, that, but that was, as you say, incredibly just heartwarming, for want of a better word. And it does make yeah. you stop and think. And you're, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. And so I remember things from my training over the years that yeah. my instructors have probably long forgotten. They're nothing to them, but to me, they're clear as crystal, even today. Yeah. All the years later, you know, I remember those moments. And, um, yeah, and we have that power with others now. It's scary when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, there's another important point that, for instance, we, we often, I don't know about yourself, but we often, well, I often forget how much I can affect somebody's world as a teacher uh, to the student. Now, I spent quite a few years heavily into the sword arts, uh, specifically kendos. When I lived in London, I was, I was very fortunate that I lived not far from a, a kendo club. And uh, it's always tricky getting the right night, the right time when you're available um, to do such things, yeah? And it, anyway, the, the stars aligned and I was able to practice kendo with, with this instructor that had trained in Japan and so on and so forth. Anyway, there was a particular technique which I really struggled with. I just couldn't do it. And to the point, right? And it's quite, it's quite almost humiliating, especially when you're, you're a black belt and above in other martial arts. He literally said to me, go and stand at the back and practice. Um, so I felt like a bit, you know, like 
a bit like, uh, I don't know, inadequate. Anyway, so I kept practicing, practicing, practicing. And he'd walk past, looking at me. He wouldn't say a word. Typical Japanese style. Walk past me, look at me, wouldn't say anything. And then eventually he came up to me and said, well done, you've got it. And bear in mind, you know, I'm, I was many years an instructor. My whole world changed when he said that to me. And that was a defining moment for me as an instructor because I realized what effect I can have on my students. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I just go around telling everybody how great they are. No, he put me through almost like a negative, like a, like a, positive, you know, a positive stress situation where I had to go at the back of the class. And, but it was typical Japanese style. Uh, and then eventually, after he saw I did enough repetitions, it was like, yes, that's it. You've got it. Well done. And like I say, the whole, my whole world changed, the energy, you know, all of a sudden it became the best day in my life. <laughs> yeah, I, think it, I think it's interesting because um, coming from a certain age and being a certain age, it's almost like you've watched this shift in how martial arts is taught and translated and, and how it works in the modern age. Because, um, again, when you're saying that there, I mean, it was one of those where the instructors were not demonstrative back in the day. They really weren't. You know, you'd wait months for them to just look at you and go, good. Yeah. And you'd be like, wow, that's amazing. Like, <laughs> and, and, and that was enough. That was, a, that was enough interaction and enough praise to push you through the next few months, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's funny. It's funny now that, that sort of we're in a world where we're literally giving prizes for turning up. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And I mean, I don't know about you. I don't know how you feel about that because... Um, I don't know, do you feel that that's kind of a negative modern well, twist on it? For my own personal, well, I've been accused oftentimes of being quite a hard instructor. Now, that's mainly because of the way I was taught in Japan. Uh, I came from the sort of hard styles where if the instructor didn't say anything to you, that meant you were doing okay. So if they, didn't, if they walked straight past you, that, kind of, that was confirmation that you're doing okay. But you had to understand that. Most people would take it that they haven't said anything, so I'm not doing okay. So once you understand that concept, so in the past, I did often, not often, but a few times I got accused of being a bit harsh and not being complimentary. But like I say, that was purely the way I was taught. And I understood it. I got the gist of that style of training. And then as over the years, I then had to kind of be a little bit more reward-based or focused with regards to my teaching. Um, the way I, my philosophy on it is that I have to apply, nothing's for free. I have to apply even a minimal amount of positive stress to a situation, but I'll never put anybody in a situation that they can never get out of. So I can generally gauge somebody's level of capabilities and abilities. So I'll never put them in a testing situation without prior training. And I'm, I make a very def definitive line between, between training and testing. And I make it very, very clear. I never test a student uh, until I've trained them. And that doesn't just mean their belt tests. It just means during the class. I'll never put them in, on the spot or in a position where I'm testing them, even psychologically. Uh, without prior training, that's going to be adequate enough to get them through any form of testing. So, yeah, when I've taught the kids in the past, obviously you can't be too harsh and you do have to kind of um, be very reward 
orientated, what I would do is I would literally set them up to experience a bit of positive stress, uh, but always make sure that the outcome was positive and that they, that they would always kind of be a winner. But they had to go through maybe a phase of losing. So they could be in a sparring situation where, let's say, a kid doesn't, is not doing too well against, say, two opponents. I'll make sure that he'll always finish on a bit of a, a, bit of a high. Uh, which, which I think is the art of, of the coach or the instructor, is being able to manage, um, I wouldn't use the word manipulate, but being able to manage that situation for the best outcome. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One of the um, one of the things I remember from years ago was watching a an instructor, a friend of mine, absolutely wonderfully got a wonderful guy, totally underrated um, by a lot of people because he doesn't do the whole look at me on social media, you know. And so and so mm-hmm. he goes under the radar quite a lot. A guy called Tony Bell, exceptionally good jujitsu guy, um, Japanese jujitsu traditional stuff, judo guy, high level. Sure. And um, I, I, he came to my club. And he's been in my club lots, but he came to my club the one day and we, we, we did a series of gradings for, for a few different clubs about. And I'd never seen anyone have the knack of pushing somebody right to the very, very, very edge of what they're capable of and knowing exactly when to then release that pressure. Yeah. It, was, it was literally like watching an artist paint a, a genuine masterpiece. It was yeah. incredible. incredible. And, and it's something that I remember to this day because I... I've been around lots of gradings over the years, both in my own and other people's and various clubs and things. So, I've never seen it done that well before, taking them right to that very edge. Yeah. It was a masterpiece, yeah. And so that's a, I think that's one of the, that's the skill of, of a really good quality instructor, which I don't class myself as, by the way, um, is knowing where that line is with people and knowing. Well, I think it's a spectrum, isn't it? It's a spectrum. Because when you become an instructor, obviously you start out and, you kind of learn by your mistakes. Uh, you try to limit the amount of mistakes, but really, as an instructor, it depends on how. Depends on your introduction to instructing. Like for instance, myself, I kind of got forced into it because my my instructor retired. So it was either I became an instructor or we didn't have nowhere to train. Um, I was one of his senior students, so it was kind of on me to 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 set something up, which which I did. Um, but I remember in the beginning, I had literally like. To, this is when I came back from Holland. So the old club was was dismantled. I had two students, and I remember my first, my very first class with two students. I was quite, I was very nervous, but just because it was me being at the front of the class, it was all on me instead of me just turning up. Um, but by the end of the month, I remember we had twenty five students. Uh, I call it the golden ages. It was when um, Jean Claude Van Damme and Kickboxer movie was out. Um, I used to have classes of up to 60 to 70 people in a big sports hall. Like I say, I call it the golden years. And then, and this is before the health clubs were around. So this would have been around about 1992. Um, and just after that, all these fitness clubs opened up, which kind of, and then stuff like boxer size and um, kickboxer size and kickbox aerobics. Uh, that kind of, I remember it kind of hit me. My numbers went right down, but after a couple of years, it started to go back up again because of the um, people who gone to the health clubs, trained a bit of uh, boxer size, maxed out after six weeks of repetition, and they wanted to take it a step further. And I always just remember that um, sometimes they'd come along and they'd say, well, yeah, I've done boxer size. And 
I was actually pleasantly surprised. At, they're actually quite well trained in the basics. At least they knew the left and the right and some kind of guard stance. They didn't actually acquire too many bad habits. So it actually worked out right in the end with regards to um, the advent of a new kind of movement, fitness movement. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, it's funny you should say that because one of the, the things that uh, people were sort of complaining about and people were quite vocal about uh, over the past year was the fact that boxer size specifically were one of the first to be able to get back to actually using pads and things. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people felt that that was, you know, incredibly unfair, so on and so forth. I mean, I don't know whether it is or whether it isn't, but it was interesting that they were allowed to do things that lifetime trainers weren't, you know. Um, I don't know yeah. quite how that worked out, but it was, it was an interesting, interesting point. Yeah, yeah, I did pick up on that. And um, <clears throat> with regards to the closure, I, I thought, you know what, I've been teaching for 30-odd years pretty much consecutively. I'm going to have a bit of a holiday. I'm going to let things settle down. And um, like I say, I set up my off-grid dojo, which was very low in terms of pressure because I didn't have any rent to pay because it was it was on the premises that I've already got. And I could literally pick and choose students. Um, and there was times where I just didn't teach anybody. Um, but it was almost like a, I used the time wisely to reorganise what I'm doing, my own psychology with regards to the situation and make potential changes that are taking place uh, adaption um and i you know i've done the zoom thing as well uh in terms of teaching personally you can do certain things but there's nothing like being on the mats or being in front of somebody when it comes to especially combatives uh, some of the personal protection stuff i can do very well on zoom but a lot of it you really need that face-to-face -face interaction and and group group environment dynamic yeah i actually uh, as, as i'm not sure whether you know i actually wrote a book uh, myself and Kai morgan we wrote a book to, uh, we talked around the question of online martial arts evolution or extinction and and how that would affect it and everything and that came out literally just before all this happened so it was oh. timed sort of really well for that because yeah. it's since sort of played out in a lot of ways and, and it's interesting when you look at sort of how it's all gone but um, I was actually going to ask you a question, if you don't mind, because it's an interesting one. And I would like your take on this, because I've had this conversation with a few people and um, and there are some different variations to the response. So basically, if we look throughout history and we go we go all the way back and, and, and I know that there's no real confirmed, absolutely written in stone certainty as to how the martial arts first came into the world. There's lots of theories and there sure. are a few accepted kind of things. But anyway, it's followed this pathway. But what we do know is that there's been points of history and geographical locations where martial arts training has been banned. Okay, it's either been completely outlawed or it's been banned to certain parts of the population, whether that be political or social. <clears throat> But throughout those historic periods where it's been banned, there has always been an underground a number of people that have kept that art alive. And in some cases, the art has been born because it had to be underground and hidden. Yeah. And that was the genesis for these arts in the first instance. So the, the question is, given the circumstances that we've lived through and we, we will probably live through again and other parts of the world are having it harder, 
do we as instructors have a responsibility to try and keep the art alive, even if that means going against the the current narrative? Well, yeah, <laughs> we're talking some kind of like ninjutsu, <laughs> potentially. Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, if you think about capoeira, you know, it was yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that came about, you know, through wasn't meant. To, and so, the, again, if you talk, uh, you'll get a lot of people talk about old school Okinawan karate and things and the weaponry and that because they had to use farm implements and things and so on and so yeah. forth. Um, and so all of these sort of evolutions and all of these these ways that it's happened. And, and you said ninjutsu, Joe, uh, uh, but again, although it's become this parody of itself with the 80s movies and things, yeah. It does have a proper place in history, and and, I, and I did actually uh, I did actually meet a guy who claimed to have um, spent many years training in Japan and claimed to be a fourth dan, and he and he had some actual skills. Yeah. You know, I never seen him do the whole poof and disappear thing, but he had some genuine physical skills. Um, well, well here's my a, question is, is sorry, sorry. I, I was basically just going to say it is the question is. Given all of that, given that history, looking at it from that point of view, do we as instructors, the, for people that have a genuine art, do we have a responsibility to try and keep that alive? Okay, well, my take on it is this, and just, just before I move on uh, to, the, to answer the question, uh, even combat um, sambo or sports sambo, one of the uh, creators of it, he got put in jail by the Russian um, Communist Party, by Stalin, because he was doing stuff with J the Japanese. So he thought that he might be in collusion with the Japanese. So that was nearly a lost art. Um, but somebody else interjected uh, to convince Stalin that it wasn't the case, and then it was allowed to carry on. So as an example, that's one martial art that could have been completely wiped out. And I guess it probably did go underground uh, in some ways, for the most part. So yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I don't, I don't think this is nothing new. So what we're going through right now, it's happened before, but in different ways. Okay, so normally by world wars, and um, say in Japan, it would be uh, different factions fighting for the territory and so on and so forth for for the emperors. And so. Historically, it's nothing new that the martial arts has had to almost go underground, maybe, uh, reinvent itself, rebrand re itself, change the image, change the focus on some of the techniques. Um, now, I, I always say that one man's tradition was another man's innovation. So <clears throat> when you see some martial artists that say, I have to practice it, this way because it's how it was practiced 700 years ago and for me to practice it in the same way is a success i tend to see that as apart from the art i tend to see that as a failure because it probably hasn't evolved through the different uh, times and that would include weapons uh what we wear uh technology um and many other factors that things have to evolve in order, order, in order for them to become relevant and current with whatever is in front of us. Now, I'm always of the thinking that at any moment we could either be have civil um, unrest, 
uh, war, invasion, uh, catastrophe. Life is generally, well, it's not generally fragile, but it can be fragile at times. Now, some of my um, relatives, some of my teachers and teachers' teachers, they lived through World War I, World War II, communism. So you can imagine what their life was like. They literally went from one thing to another. It was literally, they'd get a, a few days downtime and then it was another thing, then another thing, then another thing. <clears throat> what we've gone through right now, in the grand scheme of things, although it's major, it's probably not as harsh or as bad as what others have gone through. Um, I've read quite a lot of, uh, of research, quite a lot of the history, uh, recent history, even, even within the last hundred years. And if you extend that to like Central America, the slave trade, so on and so forth, <clears throat> there's been horrendous times. And like you say, with Capoeira, that was born out of the uh, slave trade in Brazil, where they had to camouflage things. Well, right here, right now, I mean, what I'm doing right now is part of that evolution because there, I think for the most part in the last 18 months, it's been psychological. It's been a test of nerve. Um, physically, unless you've got ill and been to hospital, we haven't really been physically affected. You know, there's, there's been food, although we've had to queue up. Um, we've still got shelter. There's no tanks on the street. There's no um, troops kicking the door down. Um, yeah, you may get stopped and asked for your, for whatever, but, you know, it's not like, um, yeah. I mean, from my, my experience, it hasn't been too bad. <clears throat> but psychologically, and I've also heard and I've had people contact me about their relatives committing suicide over the last 18 months. And it, it's almost with regret that they wish that they couldn't have got to train with me or spend time with me and stuff like that um, before this happened. So I see this more of a, as a psychological problem at the moment and emotional and a test of nerve. Now, for those, especially those that have competed at a high level, they're some of the things that you would have had to deal with um, all the way through your career. You know, that, that test of nerve is one thing. Uh, the psychology of, of believing in yourself and not allowing your opponent to place doubt, hesitation, fear, or negativity in, inside your mind. Um, I always say to competitors and, and people that ask any questions like this, if you look at smack talk before a fight, it's a psychological warfare. If you can get a reaction out of your opponent, you've kind of already won because you know that you, you can move them. If you can move them psychologically, you can definitely get to them physically. So <clears throat> for me, I see that what's happened has been largely psychological, uh, mainly through the media, um, I don't really want to talk too much about the political side of things, but uh, politicians have been involved, the mainstream media have been involved, and it's mainly a, a psychological attack. Um, it's created confusion, doubt, hesitation, fear, uh, and surprise. Now, they're the subjects that, as martial artists and personal protection, we've been dealing with since day one. Um, uh, but... I've been disappointed that a lot of the martial arts don't really focus on, on the sort of non-tangible or non-physical aspects of the martial arts. 
and being able to you mentioned you, you mentioned it earlier about being able to stay calm in 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 front of danger and so on and so forth or situations it's very important as a martial artist so i would say that instructors that are teaching now that they need to look at that side of things the psychological side of training how how does it affect how does it strengthen um the emotions uh, emotional fitness i often talk about emotional fitness people i've never been asked uh what's your emotional fitness like i've been asked what my cardiovascular or my muscular strength and endurance is like i've never been asked what my emotional fitness is like well these are the things that i think instructors need to start looking looking at and incorporating into it it doesn't mean to say that you have to i don't know become all emotional uh far from it it just means that you need to have a, uh, an understanding of how the emotions or we tend to use the word spirit or fighting spirit um can be inserted and put into our martial arts systems so i would say and, and and this is true if you look at mma or the ufc they've kind of maxed out on the physicalities of it uh in terms of their um physical conditioning uh their bjj their mai tai their k1 their whatever else goes into the mix they've maxed out on that the only way you can differentiate a fighter now for the most part will be psychologically and emotionally or the fighting spirit so yeah so i think the martial arts i think we have to go back to the psychological aspects of psychological warfare um in terms of being able to to stay strong yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, there was a, a stat that I heard today for the first time, and that is that in the UK, more men have committed suicide this year yep. than, than, than soldiers have died since 1945 in the UK. Uh, so UK Army, um, which, yeah. <clears throat> which is, uh, you know, a substantial amount of people, a substantial amount of numbers. You know, my own father committed suicide, and it's one of the reasons why I ended up getting heavily into martial arts, because I needed that um that peer group i needed that sort of orientation i needed that somebody to please you know so they became my surrogate family very much sure. so yeah um and, uh, and it's something that i i see all of the time there's the the benefits the mental benefits of martial arts training then it's not just martial arts by the way i mean again when people say that, I, I actually say, well, do you know what? Anything that pushes you to the extremes of what you're capable of, anything yeah. that tests you, anything that, that drives you forward, you know, you could be a mountain climber. It doesn't matter. The, the premise is the same. Yeah. Um, anything that does that for you. And it's a huge, a huge struggle for people in this time with regards to not being able to access those things, to do those things for themselves. I mean, yeah. again, we're all, we're all aware of, yes, we can bounce up and down in front of the screen and do a Zumba workout or a Zoom lesson or what have you. We can do that. And, and there's benefits to that. If only physical movement, you know, getting the blood pumping, getting the muscles working. Yeah. But as you rightly say, the, 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 the mental side of it, the psychological side of it, the thing that actually gives us the resilience, because, again, I talk about, um, there's that film, well, there's not based on the true story, the 27 hours where that the rock climbing chap saw his own arm off. Okay, yep, yep. And so for those that don't know the story, just very quickly, there's 
there was a guy who was out climbing alone and he got stuck. And the only way that he could save himself was to take out a rusty old pen knife that he had and cut his own arm off. Now he passed out several times through the pain. It took him a number of attempts and then he dragged himself out of there and, and back to civilization with a stump. Um, and the whole process was 27 hours long. Now, you can't tell me that he didn't get through that you know, by not using his mental strength. That's the only reason that he got through that. I, I don't care how much bodybuilding you do. If you haven't got the mental strength, you know, yep. you're, you're going to fall down. So, um, and so, yeah, so the question really on that is that, that brings you sort of full circle in regards to, well, how do you embed that into your training? How do you make that part of your daily routines? And how do you expand your mental muscle, if you like? Uh, I, I always link it to... So as an example, uh, in Japan, uh, it's quite common for businessmen to get up four o'clock in the morning, they go to the dojo and they practice kendo uh, before they hit the boardroom. Now, I used to be fascinated by this. And it was actually, I got into the sword arts literally at my peak of MMA fighting in Japan, which has absolutely nothing to do with sword fighting. Uh, but there used to be, one of the one of my teachers was heavily into the sword arts and he he was quite elderly and he used to practice a lot and he used to get up at four in the morning and hit the dojo to practice his kendo uh, before he went to his job which was which was uh, as a director in a business or a corporation now when he had a very sharp mind and he always used to impress me he spoke like five different languages he was like an international man of mystery he could pretty much do anything. And he used to impress me. And I kind of almost saw him as some kind of father figure when I was out in Japan, uh, because for the most part, I was there by myself. You know, like a foreigner in Japan can be quite stressful. Um, at the, in the beginning, I didn't speak the language. Anyway, he became like a father figure to me. And I used to spend quite a bit of time talking to him and, and, and doing a little bit of training when we could. And he inspired me to take up kendo. Anyway, when I was back in the UK, as I mentioned before, I was lucky to train in a kendo club in London. Well, I used to ride my motorbike uh, to training because in London, you, you don't want a car. So I used to have this motorbike. Anyway, I used to practice the cuts. Nothing fancy, just basic cuts. When I finished and I rode my motorbike back, my ability to ride my motorbike was multiplied a hundredfold. Uh, my, my position, my timing, my balance, uh, my, my ability to um, see what's coming and my ability to process. And then it was really then that I realized that the businessmen in Japan, they practice kendo so that they can make decisions in the boardroom, executive decisions. There's no doubt, there's no hesitation, uh, there's no fear, there's no surprises. So literally the art of um, hitting a target with, especially if you use uh, a live blade, um, the margin of error is, is zero. You have to become very, very precise. So I generally use precision training and it can mean anything um, as long as it's kind of like a target and it's, you have to be precise and the margin of error is very fine. So I incorporate that into my own training and into my students' training. Um, I even remember in, the, in, in a boxing gym I went to, 
which was kind of like a sweat and sawdust type. We did the circuits, and guess what you did at the end of the circuit? You had to play darts. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember in the military, in my basic training, we they used to give us a real beasting, and then they used to give us mathematical questions or puzzles. You know, when you're completely gassed out, like you, you want to puke up, they'll give you mathematical equations, questions, or even your, your, your rank and number was sometimes difficult to, to get out when, you, when you're that tired. So, yeah, so bringing it back to the point, if you can include something that uses the psychology with the physicalities, uh, I tend not to train the psychology in isolation. Um, I'll tell you, one, one thing I often do, especially in my gradings, is that I will suddenly ask the student a question of which they already know the answer. But because you suddenly ask it and you put them under, on the spot, it's very easy for them to forget. And at the beginning of the grading, I will remind them, I'll say at some point, I will come up to you. And if you, if you stand there and go, uh, mm, uh, uh, mm, then it's too late. So it could be something like, uh, I call it a tokiwaza, which is like your favorite technique. So I'll say to them, I'll go up to them and say, right, what's your favorite technique? And they'll say, left hook. Good. What's your favorite combination? Uh, left hook, right cross, low point kick. Okay, good. If at any moment I go up to somebody and say that, and they go, uh, yeah, uh, no. Uh, to be honest, I don't care what it is, as long as it's something that they can respond with um, without, without a pause or a delay. Yeah. Does, that, does that make sense? I, I went on a bit of a, a bit of a ramble there. <laughs> no, it does it make sense and uh and, and funnily enough I, I was i was actually shown about the dark thing quite some time ago years and years ago in fact um yeah. I mentioned my dad earlier on and he used to play darts a lot and then a few years after that um there was a an instructor that i was talking to and he was saying about the the, the basically the way that they focus in um on the dartboard to get you know the small the very small clusters of darts that they do yeah. um and 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 that you can apply that technique into just about anything you want to apply it to sure. um and that yeah so I, I you know i have heard that before with regards to the darts and um it's an interesting concept and i suppose again it brings us back to that 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 you sort of you see what you what you think about so it's like you can spend your whole life not seeing that many yellow cars but you buy a yellow car and all yeah. of a sudden they're everywhere you know yeah, that well, kind of well also if you look at um all right i'll ask you the question uh hopefully you'll get it right uh not, not putting you on spot on it but if you think of executive board members okay what is the game that they often play there's a game that they play like executive like bosses or executives uh they, 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 they like golf yeah Oh, sorry. Yes, they're, they're, yeah, there's a lot golf. of golf going on. Yeah, I thought you meant actually in the boardroom together in the meeting. Oh no, sorry. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. golf. Yes. Yes. Golf. Well, a lot of my a lot of my Japanese instructors were very very big on golf. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's you get the same after effect as you do when you practice the sword arts because it's all about precision. You've got to get this small ball into a hole that's far away, and it requires a lot of um, 
technique and being able to process through the brain and uh, the desire and then to, to have the action through the body. Uh, this, to me, is, is no different. It's the same thing. It's, it's designed as a game. Well, it's probably not designed for that, but it attracts people that need to make decisions, um, which is actually, I've got a funny story. When I, my, my MMA career in Japan came to an abrupt um, halt. It ended quite quickly. I didn't really plan for it. Uh, when I came back to the UK, I went through a phase where I was kind of like, what am I going to do? Um, I went through a few job interviews and they were like, well, what have you been doing for the last five years? And I was like, well, you want to be honest? Like, of course. Uh, I was in Japan fighting people, um, in Russia fighting people. Uh, and they'd look at me and be like, well, I don't think you'd be suitable for this job. So I went through this phase where I just didn't know what to do and I couldn't get a job and stuff like that. Anyway, I did eventually start working and I ended up in insecurity. And what I found that everybody around me was like, oh my God, oh my God. Uh, uh, like it was a crisis all the time. Whereas I would, I would be very Zen-like. I'd be like, I don't see what the problem is. Like the, the building's not collapsing. Like what, what's the big deal? Why is everybody stressing out? Well, what that suddenly taught me is that my time in Japan really conditioned me to be able to take stress and pressure, unlike most people, because, you know, I, I was literally having 12 fights per year, which meant after one fight, I was back training, ready for the next fight, and then ready for the next fight. Maintaining that degree of, of focus, dedication, um, discipline, meant that I could pretty much face anything. And some of the, the giants I had to fight out there, because I was relatively small, because I was a heavyweight, uh, in Japan, anything over 85 kilos is a heavyweight. So I would be, say, 95 kilos, and some of my opponents would be 145 kilos because it was open weight. So when you stood there in front of somebody that's almost double your size, in front of thousands of people live on uh, World World Television, which is like the main sports channel in Japan, there's a little bit of pressure, to say the least. Now, because I did that, uh, for, for quite a long time, coming back and working in a normal environment for me was actually very easy. Uh, and I quickly realized that it wasn't all a waste. Even in the corporate world, I could actually transfer what I'd learned from the martial arts and being under pressure. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why I called it critical performance. Um, so that it's not just limited to fighting or martial arts. It's basically anything that, that puts you under positive stress that you can actually translate it into the mundane day-to-day -day task of having a job or being a manager or something, organising things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, there are, there are people that, you know, that, that, that actually do very well in that space, as in using the principles of martial arts at a corporate level and training staff and, and things like that yeah. and, and, do, and do well out of it. And so, um, again... I, is the book of five rings is a prime example of that How, you know all business leaders must must yeah. read it um, also it, the art of war i've got the book the art of war for executives yeah, so yeah that's a classic book and um it's still used it's you know the art of war still used by governments by uh marketeers by management um yeah uh, corporations 
So yeah, right. We're going to um, have to wrap it up soon. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you wanted to to talk about or mention? I could talk about all sorts of things for for, <laughs> for hours, but um, but as you say, we do have other things that we need to sort of be getting on to. Um, so yeah, hopefully we'll get a chance to sort of chat some more another time. And it's been yeah. you know, it's been, it's been very interesting, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, well, I'm saying to all the guests, um, there's the option to come back twice, even the third time. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of synergy. Uh, I, I knew this would happen because our backgrounds are kind of similar and also we're involved with similar things. And actually, we both ended up with similar dojos. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'll definitely have you back. Now, for the viewers... Can you give your contact details or how can people get hold of you and maybe just remind everybody where you're located in the UK? Um, yeah. Yeah, um, so basically the I'm on all the social media outlets, as you know. Um, and again, that's an interesting topic that we didn't really get to, but um, you know, that is a medium for delivery. Next time we'll chat about that. So yeah, all of the social media channels you can find me under Matt State or Modern Samurai. Again, for the trolls out there, no, I don't believe I'm an ancient feudal warrior. It is because of the gym, Modern Samurai Martial Arts Academy, is named after that. Um, so yeah, you can find all of that. Obviously, I've got books and things out and online courses and what have you. And I'm always interested in having a conversation. So if you have anything interesting to say and you want to talk to me, then please get in touch. I'd love to hear from people. Yeah, and I'll put all your contact details in the show notes if that's okay with yourself. Yeah, yeah. So if you didn't capture any of that, then you can always look in the show notes. So I just want to thank thank you, Matt, for being on the podcast today. It's it was great uh, to chat. Real pleasure. Uh, you're a real gentleman, and uh, yeah, you're welcome back anytime. Excellent. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed the chat, and um, yeah, hope we do it again. Yeah. Okay. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.